This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And today we are bringing you a bumper episode where we are going to be covering three movies, two feature films and one documentary. So what's it going to be, Darren? It was going to be the last episode, but we decided that we'd talk about Scream, which was a timely thing to do. But this episode we are actually getting to Troll, Troll 2 and the documentary Best Worst Movie. And, as you heard before that sting of music, we're all about the trolls this week. Or are we all about the trolls? We might be all about the goblins as well. But before we get into all of that stuff, we're going to cover the first troll movie, which was directed by John Carl Bushler. I believe we have a synopsis for Troll? Yes, we do. This synopsis is written by Claudio Carvajalo from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The Potter family has just moved to a rented apartment in San Francisco. Harry Potter Sr. and his wife Anne are bringing the packages to the apartment and their son Harry Jr. and their little daughter Wendy Anne stay on the sidewalk. Wendy goes to the laundry room. She meets the wicked troll Torok that uses his magic ring to possess Wendy and use her form to transform the dwellers and their apartment into other trolls and his kingdom. Harry Jr. feels that something is wrong with his sister and seeks out help with the good witch Eunice St. Clair that lives in the building. Yeah, pretty good synopsis. Actually doesn't give too much away. Does give away the fact that the main character is called Harry Potter. Yeah, so um, before we actually get into the film, we need to discuss this. So this movie came out way before J.K. Rowling wrote the famous Harry Potter series. And allegedly the filmmakers of this movie were hoping to like file a lawsuit against her for copyright because they believe there are so many similarities between Troll and Harry Potter. Now, yes, there's the fantasy element, the name of the character, and yes, there is a troll in Harry Potter. But other than that, I just don't think in quality they're exactly the same. I think it's not similar enough. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to start copywriting character names, that's a bit of a slippery slope. It doesn't really have the same through line as any of the Harry Potter stuff either. So I think it is just a bit of a coincidence. But, you know, fair enough. If they thought they might get a bit of cash on the back end off it. It was a very low budget movie. It was one of a string of movies. Empire Pictures released in the 80s. All kind of similarly targeted. There was a lot of stuff that they did that was PG-13. So... It was not quite kiddie enough for kids, but really not adult enough for adults. And I think this is one of the problems of Troll, in that some of it is actually quite unpleasant conceptually, which wouldn't be suitable for kids. But there's so much of it that is clearly aimed at children 
that it kind of falls between two stills and it's a bit of a weird one. I mean, I remember renting this on VHS and back in the day, there wasn't such a thing as a 12 certificate. That's how fucking old I am. It's a, It was a 15 when I rented this on video. And I do remember at the time thinking, it's not much of a 15, this. There's a couple of bits which are sort of borderline 15, but it's very weak beer indeed. If, you, if you're tuning in to think it's something like some more of the Empire's more questionable movies. They went on to do more adult stuff like uh, Reanimator and Subspecies and things like that, and Dollman. Some of which were really high quality, some of which weren't. Uh, Dollman, I'm looking at you here. Yeah, it's kind of a snapshot of the 80s. It does remind me of all those entertainment and videotapes I rented that were all Empire Pictures. And they were all kind of pitched at the same level. It was some low-level fantasy. I mean, this is okay because I've got a lot of nostalgia for it. And it's got some good actors and it's got Michael Moriarty in it, for starters. He probably was only on set for a couple of days because he's not in it much as the dad. So anything with Michael Moriarty in it almost goes a couple of notches up in my book, even if the movie's terrible. Also, I never remembered this because it's so long since I've seen Troll. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is in it of Seinfeld and Veep. She's one of the people in the apartment building. And it completely slipped my mind that Julia Louis-Dreyfus was in it. Again, she's not in it too much. And she's quite embarrassed about being in it, apparently. I don't see why she's all right in it. I think it might just be a question of the movie. But, I mean, I wouldn't say the movie's embarrassing. I just think it's a bit clunky and not an awful lot happens in it. Yeah, it's, I found it very hard going. I mean, I came to this film um, when I purchased the uh, MGM DVD release of Troll 2 along with the first Troll. And like obviously as we'll get into it, like Troll 2 is just an insane cult classic of bad movies. And just because this was in the DVD pack with it, I just thought I'm curious to watch Troll. But it is definitely worlds apart from Troll 2. It doesn't have the same kind of bad quality but it it is it, as I say it's hard going it's not awful but it's as you say clunky that's probably the best way to describe it because the acting isn't really on point it's very cheesy and I think it's tonally jarring because it, it's got elements of a kid's fantasy mixed with some kind of mild horror and it just doesn't really work and as an adult, I'm quite bored watching it, so I don't know how I would have felt if I'd come through to this as a kid. At the beginning, it was set to be made as a slasher movie, and I personally think if they had gone down that route, I would have preferred it. I think that would have been better than just trying to capitalise on popularity of um, franchises in the 80s, like Never Ending Story and that, that type of thing. Yeah, I think um, because they'd seen Noah Hathaway in the never-ending story. That's why they cast him in the lead role here. And he's fine. I mean, the kids are okay. Uh, Wendy, who gets taken over by the troll, she's quite fun, snarling at people. That's okay, all of that stuff. But it does take an awful long time to get to where it's going. The one thing I will say for it is that um, June Lockhart, who plays the witch, Eunice St. Clair, is brilliant in this. I love June Lockhart in this movie. Because she plays a witch who's really sassy and doesn't really give much of a shit. And she carries this pretty much all the way through the movie. And if you're going to watch Troll, she's pretty much worth the admission price alone. If you're there for a lot of Troll-related action, it doesn't deliver an awful lot of that. There's some quite nice stop-motion stuff. I mean, it's obviously stop-motion and it's not 
particularly convincing that it looks quite cheap, but it's quite endearing when it happens. There is a fairly unpleasant sequence with Sonny Bono where he gets jabbed by this ring that the troll has got and he kind of explodes into this forest, but there's really quite unpleasant effects of his arm sort of inflating and stuff coming out of it. Now, I don't know, do kids really want to see that sort of stuff? I'm not entirely sure they do. As an adult, I thought, yeah, that's a bit creepy and a bit gross. But I don't know. I guess even when I saw this as as somebody much younger, that just seemed kind of tonally jarring with the rest of it. Because the rest of it is kind of like a fairly light fantasy. Apart from the fact that you see an almost naked Julia Louis-Dreyfus later on because she becomes this kind of wood nymph that's luring her boyfriend to his doom. By the way, her boyfriend in this movie was actually her boyfriend in real life at the time and they did get married, I think, the year after. So that's a completely sideways bit of trivia there, which has got nothing to do with the movie. So, I mean, if something good came out of Troll, I suppose, I don't think they met on it, but I think they, they appeared together while they were dating and they've been married ever since. So that's kind of a nice story to come out of Troll. The rest of it, (laughs) the rest of it is kind of just cookie cutter, fantasy, sci-fi, horror stuff. It's got stuff about Valpurgis Night, which gets chucked in there, which is why the troll can come back to Earth for three days to try and do his dastardly deeds. The other thing I will say is that there's a character played by Phil Fondacaro, and Phil Fondacaro is a guy who's probably about three foot four, or something like that. But the screenplay never really pokes any fun at his characters at all. In fact, he's basically shown to be the most educated of the lot. He's an English professor. He comes over for dinner. He recites a poem. There was a lot of ableist stuff going on in the 80s. It was happening. Whereas this one takes a bit of a fresh approach to that. It does mention the fact that he's smaller than everybody else, but it doesn't do it in a fun way. It just says, you know, this is a matter of fact. This guy's got a regular job. He lives in the building. He's actually quite well educated. He's quite a cool guy, really. A lot of the movies that I've seen in the 80s really wouldn't have dealt with it that way. Absolutely. And he's also noted for being in Sabrina the Teenage Witch as well. That's what I know him from. He's a great character in that. But he plays a dual role in this as well. So he is the troll, Torok, and then he is also playing um, Malcolm as well. And he befriends uh, the, the little girl which is kind of strange. And then yeah. she's like, I'm bringing a friend for dinner. And then her parents are getting everything ready. And then there's like, this man turns up. <laughs> so it's, it's all a little bit odd. And then, yeah, as you say, they have that like poem bit. But it, it goes into that fantasy. And going back to that Sonny Bono sequence as well, prior to his death scene, it's basically showing that he's had a bit of an encounter with this hooker the previous night and he's very misogynistic. So again, that doesn't really fit into the whole child-friendly movie. So again, it's just very awkwardly done. And I just don't really know who this film is targeted at because as much as you could put it on for like a bad movie night, it's just not got that same level of bad movie cult status as it's not sequel does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a not sequel. Yeah, you're right. It's quite well made, this which kind of pulls it away from being a genuinely bad movie. It's just a shame that it doesn't really take off because he's got a few good ideas. The effects are quite nice. The little monsters are pretty cool. Although if you've seen a lot of Empire movies, 
you'll see this sort of monster turn up in loads of them. So there's very similar monsters in Ghoulies. In fact, one of the monsters I thought was from Ghoulies, but I have a look into it. It turns out it was from Rage War. They reused the puppet from a movie called Rage War, which was kind of like a an updated high-tech sort of Tasks of Hercules type thing, which is also kind of middling entertainment. It's fine, but it's you're never going to remember it 10 minutes after you've seen it. In fact, I had to remember what the title of Rage War was. I just thought, oh, it's that one where the guy's sent over and he has to do all these tasks to get his girlfriend back. I can't remember the title of the movie. And it was only when I looked it up, I thought, oh, it's Rage War. And I had seen it. I've definitely seen it. With a lot of Empire movies in the in the 80s, it was the sort of stuff that you could rent on a Friday night and you'd think, yeah, that was all right. Because I think the bar was set quite a lot lower in the... Well, for me, the bar was set quite a lot lower in the 80s because I rented some absolute shit in the 80s. And this was probably kind of one of the better ones. And I thought, oh, you know, at least it was something that I didn't want to kind of rip from the video um, machine and throw out of the window. It's not up there with the likes of Trancers, which is clearly the best movie Empire Pictures ever made. It's such a good movie. But... I don't know. I think nowadays people will kind of just point and laugh and just think, oh, this is this is rubbish and it's nothing happens and it's too slow and the payoff isn't all that great. I think I just coasted through on the fact that I'd seen it a very long time ago. I'd got a bit of warmth in terms of nostalgia for it and that took me through to the end. I think if you're coming to it from the first time, I think there's quite a lot to slog through in this. Oh, absolutely. That's how I feel about it. And I think if it wasn't for its connection to Troll 2, I don't think a lot of people would have seen it as well, apart from like in the 80s. But going back to the um, creature effects and stuff, it's very much like a lower budget Jim Henson creature workshop style. Yeah. And it's not bad, like for its time, I think it it is pretty good. And I do enjoy the practical effects. So that for me was um, a positive point of the film. So I think, yeah, without its connection, it probably wouldn't be as known by today's standards yeah that's forgotten about like yeah yeah, it's fair enough that and i think you're right i think um people know more about the sequel now and probably do go back to see what the predecessor was like just because the second one is just so mind-bendingly odd and it's just weird we'll get into all of that soon that people think oh where did this come from and when they see the first one they'll just think well this is nothing like the second movie (laughs) yes it is nothing like the second movie at all this is quite normal and has people that say dialogues that you could possibly hear people saying in real life whereas the second one has got none of that the second one is a crazy ride which you know will come to in due course i think that the scores on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes probably bear out that it's not such a great movie. Yeah, so on IMDb, Troll has 4.5 out of 10, which, you know, I think is kind of fair. It's yeah, yeah. heading towards yeah. average, and then it's got a 30% tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes and a 28% audience score. So, again, I think this movie is very forgettable. It's just not very well structured, and it's just the transitions are awkward and it just doesn't have enough to like keep you invested a film it does slightly remind me of is leprechaun yes Um, yeah it's a tamer version of that but i quite enjoy leprechaun so yeah i find find that quite an entertaining movie even though it's like another one that i pass is so bad it's good yeah for me like i'm glad i've seen troll but it's not one that i would be revisiting in a hurry i think there's 
more kind of B movies that I'd be seeking out like ahead of watching that again. Oh, there is. I mean, even the stuff that Empire did, it's all B movie stuff. And to be honest, some of the stuff they did is an absolute riot. This is a little bit too mannered for its own good. And as you say, it's got that weird flip between stuff that's clearly not meant for kids and stuff that's clearly aimed at kids. So who is it aimed at? We just don't know. Obviously not Harry Potter fans. No. Um, <laughs> now, allegedly, J.K. Rowling had never even heard of it as well. That was her argument against um, the filmmakers when they tried to pull this uh, lawsuit business on her. So, yeah, very different films. Both have fantasy That's and same character names, but that's, you know, where we draw the line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... It's almost that time. On the other side of this, get ready for Troll 2. Brace yourselves, folks. We're going to be discussing Troll 2, directed by... Well, my copy said it was directed by Drake Floyd, which is clearly wrong. It's Claudio Fragasso, Drake Floyd, my ass. What a ridiculous pseudonym. Now, we will definitely be talking about him in a bit, because um, there is a lot to get into there. But for now, if you haven't seen Troll 2, I'm very surprised. If you are a cult movie fan, surely this movie has like crossed your path somewhere down the line. So I'm going to begin by reading a synopsis and then we're going to talk about how we first came across Troll 2 before we get into the movie itself. So this synopsis is written by Uncle Henry. Not my Uncle Henry. I don't think it's Darren's Uncle Henry. No, it clearly isn't. (laughs) Uncle Henry on IMDb. Young Joshua is shocked to find that the bedtime stories his infamous grandpa Seth told him of evil goblins who turn people into living vegetables to eat them are about to come to a terrifying reality on a family trip to the town of Nilbog. With the assistance of the troll master, Credence Leonor Gielgud, the trolls wish to feed Joshua's family evil food. <laughs> uh, where do you start with this movie? I mean, really, where do you start? So how did you first come across it? I'm pretty sure that it was kicking about in the video rental shop. And it was one of those things where I thought, well, I, I wasn't big on sequels, apart from the Friday the 13th stuff, where I just normally thought, it's a Friday the 13th movie, I'll just rent whatever comes next. And then when I saw Troll 2, I thought, well, does it need a sequel? Troll, I'm not really sure it does, because it kind of wrapped it up. But it was a, there's a little bit of stuff in the, at the end of Troll where it kind of hints that it might carry on. But it, you don't need another story. I think it was ages before I went to see this. And... Once I actually did, uh, it was probably one of those nights where I thought, I can't find anything else. Right, I'll give Troll 2 a shot. Probably don't want to see any more of the same, but there's nothing else on the shelf. And then when I actually got it home and watched it, I thought, what? what is this movie? This is just so weird in terms of the fact that it appears to be made by people who know what they're doing, but everything about the movie is wrong in some way. Yeah, I think Troll 2 is one of those films that is a bit of a rite of passage. So I came to it on DVD. I was aware of this film, so I was looking forward to checking it out. And the amount of people I've inflicted this film on since, like I have seen it many times, and I just love seeing people's reactions. I get so much joy out of it. 
I believe it was screened as part of Bad Film Club um, in Abattoir many, many years ago, probably over a decade ago. So unfortunately, I didn't catch that. But I think that is something that I would uh, love to attend one day if they were ever going to do Troll 2. But maybe that's just too much of an obvious pick. The movie was made by an Italian production company and it starred American actors. And the problem was the language barrier where American actors were reading this script where it was written how Italians think Americans speak. And even though the American actors wanted to kind of bring their own dialect to the piece, the director was not going to let that happen. So basically what was ever on that page had to come out on screen and it is just appalling but in such a good way it's one of those movies you just cannot take your eyes off the screen you just you're just there you just invest in it because you're i think you're just astonished of like what is this and the way it even begins as well as soon as you see these goblins they're not even trolls they are goblins Mm. the movie was originally titled goblins but the whole backstory is that the u.s distributors didn't think it would stand alone so they thought they'd attach it to Troll for no apparent reason. When you see them, oh my God, the the costumes, they are... I, I just don't even know how to describe them. Like, I even have, like, a favourite one. It's the one that looks like they ran out of material. Yes, I know the one you, <laughs> you made. Yeah. You know, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about this movie, it's, it is. It's just 95 minutes of you looking at it and thinking, why is this all happening? What what went through the person's mind to decide to do it in this way? And it's got some people in there who are kind of reasonably well-known in the Italian film industry. The scores by Carlo Maria Cordio, who did things like Absurd. He's scored horror movies before. Weirdly, the costumes are by uh, Laura Gemza, who appeared in all the Joe D'Amato Black Emmanuel films in the 70s and, and early 80s. So it's got some interesting people behind the camera. And I think Joe D'Amato chucked some money and I think Phil Mirage did it. So he's behind it in terms of the financing. But that clash between an Italian director knowing what he wants to see spoken that's exactly on the page and then an American set of actors thinking no human being has ever said these words is an interesting clash. And you can see at some points you can clearly see that the actors are kind of fighting the dialogue as well because it's not well written. It's quotable. I mean, it's eminently quotable. There's loads of dialogue that you can say, but it still isn't well written. I mean, even at the start, it says, uh, you know, the the, uh, the dad, played by George Hardy, who will come on to in a bit with Best Worst Movie. He's talking about going to the town of Nilbog. And he just says, oh, yes, that's Nilbog. Oh, spell it. So they're spelling out Nilbog. Nobody even twigs that Nilbog is goblin. It's like 46 minutes before somebody realises that if you flip Nilbog around, it spells Goblin. It's like that movie Mausoleum where they had a family called Nomad. And it takes them ages in Mausoleum to realise that Nomad is demon, spelt backwards. It's exactly the same thing at work here. And you just think... There's no American town that would probably be called Nilbog. It's not a real American town name. But this just drifts by everybody. It's a movie that's populated by characters who just do things because it's written down. There's no development at all. Things just happen. There's no kind of through line in the plot. 
people will just be put in danger one point and then the danger will just dissipate because the people who are attacking them will just stand back and just let them either get away or hide in a house or something. It's just, it's so weird. Also, early on in the proceedings, you get um, Grandpa Seth, who is a ghost. We, we need to point out that Grandpa Seth, is, he's, he's died recently and he appears to the main kid in the form of a ghost. Now, Grandpa Seth is one of the shittest ghosts in movie history. He doesn't know where to appear. He comes in to a wrong room at one point and just says, oh, I'm still getting the hang of this ghost stuff. What? What? You could have just drifted around the whole house, Seth. Why would you think, oh, yeah, this is the wrong room, so I won't jump out and scare anybody else. I'll just work out where the kid is and then I'll go to see him. But no, no, Grandpa Seth has not read the ghost manual. And he just turns up and, and Grandpa Seth's powers seem to oscillate between no power at all and like his ability to control events and it's but it's just a symptom of how weird this script is it's just a convenience thing it's like right how are we going to get him in here right okay doesn't really matter if we have any sort of coherent plot let's just get him there it doesn't matter how let's just get him there Oh, yeah. I mean, the scene where he appears in the mirror to Holly, the um, daughter of the family, and that's when he's got the wrong room. Yeah. And he and it's because they're staying in this vacation house. And he just basically says he hadn't navigated the house yet. And you just just have to suspend your disbelief. It's just it's just too funny. Like, there are so many noteworthy moments in this film. I mean, one of my favourite moments and the point where I was like, is this for real? is the scene where they arrive at the house and there's a spread of food on the table for them. And Joshua knows that if they start eating these food, this food that they will turn into plants and the goblins will eat them. So obviously he's trying to protect his family. And then Grandpa Seth's like, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. And then basically this poor little kid has to stand on the table, pull his trousers down, they then cut to imply that he has pissed all over this room, <laughs> which leads his dad then to carry him over the shoulder to his room. And then he starts undoing his belt. You think, oh my God, is this child going to get the belt or something? This is like, what kind of movie is this? But he basically, <laughs> the dad says the best line, this is my favorite line, which is, you can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. And then Joshua's like, daddy, what are you going to do? And then he's basically, I'm tying him my belt <laughs> to avoid hunger pains or something along those yeah. lines. And oh my yeah. God, you just think, and then they haven't eaten for days. And then they get, there's a shop and it's owned by this crazy man who basically only sells milk. And the disgust when they ask for eggs, it's just... <laughs> so if you know, you know with Troll 2. I think Troll 2 is one of those films you have to experience at least once in your life because, oh, it's magical. It's just, it is that movie where, I know there are tons of bad movies out there, but this one just manages to be so entertaining, but baffling at the same time. But you just, as I say, you cannot take your eyes off the screen. You have to see this film through because you're just wondering what weird turns it's going to take next. Yeah, I am so sorry for what Connie McFarland had to go through in this movie, because she's the brunt of quite a lot of the complaints on, on IMDb about her performance as the daughter. You can tell that she's really trying hard, and she's clearly not getting any direction. So her performance isn't that great, 
But I don't think it's her fault. I think she's just left to run with it and nobody's reining her in at all. And again, it's just got that weird thing where she seems to be hell-bent on settling down with her boyfriend. I mean, she's not she, she's not all that old, to be perfectly honest. I mean, there's kind of a slightly creepy moment between the two of them early on where they're talking about, clearly talking about having sex at some point. But then she says that if he finds, if her dad finds out that he's trying to take her virginity, that he's going to get his nuts cut off by him. So you get this... Yeah, and eat them, yeah, exactly. Now, now that's a little bit extreme. And I know that this, this movie is about the sort of dichotomy between eating meat and not eating meat, but I don't think even the dad would have eaten the guy's nuts. And then, of course, the guy's got his crew in tow. In one way, they're, they're setting people up to just be part of the body count. But this kind of weird subplot where Elliot, who's the boyfriend, and his mates are driving around in this mobile home, and then they're just kind of lured into the town by various means so they can get turned into plant food, which leads to the oh my god bit, for starters. But even then, you know, the secondary characters are just thrown in there. There's no tasks for them to do. It's just like, right, okay, we've got some horny guys who are going out into the middle of nowhere and expecting that this one-horse town is going to be full of amazing babes. Why? What, what were they thinking when they did this? It's like it's not like a spring break movie. It's like, oh yeah, where are we gonna go? Oh, let's go to Nilbog. I've heard it's full of amazing women. Where did you hear that? I never heard that. The leap in deductive reasoning is just ridiculous. And then when they get there and it's just full of lunatics that just want to turn people into plant food and eat it. I mean, they're not particularly disturbed by it. They just hang around for a bit and just complain that there's nothing other than milk. In the general store, it's like, oh, we haven't got any supplies. It's like, just get out of there in that case. There's no reason for you to be there. Just turn around and drive out of Nilbog. There's no problem. I mean, there must be a town 40 or 50 miles in the other direction that does have food. Just fucking go there. It's like the rest of this movie. Nobody thinks in any sort of logical way. It's just incredible to see the thought process of these people. One great performance I think is in this movie because there's not a really good performance in this movie apart from one I think that um, Deborah Reed as Credence is pretty good in this movie because she knows how campy and awful this movie is and tailors her performance accordingly so she's a load of fun in this everybody else looks bewildered she's got it she knows what she's doing yeah no I agree with you there like she just hams it up completely and her performance is very memorable. It's very funny. So this movie was written by the director's wife, Rosella Drudy, and she wrote the script because she was pissed off with her friends turning vegetarian at the time. So this is very much an anti-vegetarian horror film. But going back to the logic of it, it begins with Grandpa Seth, this ghost, telling his grandson a story about these goblets. So we, we hear the story. It's in part of like a book. And then for some reason, that kind of bleeds into real life for no apparent reason. We're just like, oh, they're going on a vacation there, have swapping with another family. And everything that happens in that story at the beginning is happening in real life. But we don't really get an understanding of why. It's terrible writing. But the fact that this film got funding and distributed and everything, it's just amazing. But I think 
there was definitely something special there. It's a very special movie. (laughs) (laughs) It is a a special movie, yes. I think whoever wanted to back this film must have seen that the world had to see Troll 2. It had to be there in this public sphere for people to just kind of be bewildered at, I guess. It's an experience and it's one that I'm grateful for in my life because it brought me so much joy and laughter. But yeah. that's not how the director wants you to interpret it, which we will get into. Yeah, no, it's, it's supposedly a serious meditation on family and things like that, which we will get into. Uh, it isn't. It really isn't. And the fact that a couple of years later they wanted to know how it was doing and then were surprised when they said that it had got these terrible reviews. It's like, well, did anybody sit through it? I mean, I can't think of any way that I could mount a defence for Troll 2 being a good movie by normal good movie standards because it doesn't have a leg to stand on. The performances are all over the shop. The plotting is non-existent. It just leaps about from place to place with no regard for any sort of development of the story. It's kind of fun on the level that it's very campy and there are a couple of bits of genuine... I wouldn't say genius... But there's some quite interesting ways that they twist the normal horror tropes where you've got the femme fatale who goes after one of Elliot's mates and she turns up and she's Credence and she turns up and she's very elegant, very glamorous and very sexy. And then it pans down and then she's got a sweet corn. She wants to lure him into the vegetarian world and she's seducing him with this corn on the cob, basically, which is mental. Absolutely mental. And then he's kind of drowning in popcorn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It gets so hot that the corn starts popping, which again, it's quite imaginative, but it's got nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Even if you're looking for a bit of a body count, I mean, when people die, and not very many people die in this movie, it's all quite strange. The green gloop that they turn them into... <laughs> You don't really get much in terms of body horror, in terms of the effects. It's just like they kind of sink into the floor very unconvincingly and then there's like a mat of green sludge. So if you're looking for gore, it's not going to happen in this movie. It doesn't take that route. It ends up kind of like a Night of the Living Dead thing, but there's a siege in a house where the family's trapped inside and all the townsfolk are outside just waiting for them so that they can turn them into goo. But... Nobody tries to get into the house, really. It's just like a standoff, and there's no action in this movie. But yet, they're setting it up to be this big showdown between the two sides, which doesn't actually come to pass at all. There's a little bit of action in terms of uh, somebody gets set on fire, which admittedly is quite unpleasant. But the rest of it, it's just people sitting around delivering weird dialogue. There's a a sermon that takes place in the church, which is absolutely hilarious because it's this guy who's ranting about meat eaters and like the sort of the dangers of the steak sausages. And it's, oh, it's, it's if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Troll 2 and thinking like this, this can't be happening. This doesn't happen in the movie. It does happen in the movie. All of the stuff that we've told you happens in the movie. And I don't think we're quite giving justice to how, bonkers it is i think we're playing down just how bizarre this movie is you do have to go out and see it for yourself i'm not saying you're gonna have a good time you do have to see it though oh yeah we can definitely not bring it justice just by talking about it but 
I think you'd have to be like a, a certain person to not enjoy it, I think, because it's it's just so strange and you just need to go with it. I think if you just go with it, just get on board with it, suspend your disbelief, you will have a good time with it, absolutely. And going back to like somewhat action sequences in it, the stunts in this were hilarious. The bits where like the trolls were, well, the goblins were attacking. <laughs> I don't even know what monster I'm talking about anymore. This is what the film's confused me. And when the goblins are attacking the family, there's a bit where like one of them either gets pushed or kicked down the stairs, but I don't think anyone actually touches him. And it's just like they roll down the stairs. It's so unconvincing, but it just, it just brings that charm to it. Yeah, I just think this movie is so unique. And going into the documentary, it's just like how this is the best worst movie. I think that is the most apt title for it because it is. I've, you know, I enjoy bad movies. And we've seen a few. I think Darren obviously has seen a lot more than I have. <laughs> obviously, going back to lots of video renting. But I think this, alongside The Room, this is the, probably like one of the most memorable must-see bad movies of all time yeah it's definitely worth a watch and you can enjoy it if you just switch your brain off if you're gonna try and pick holes in it it's too easy if you think it's gonna be a quality movie it isn't a quality movie but you can enjoy it for what it is if you don't get past the point early on where they're wandering through the town and they just say oh nobody's gonna be around at this time of night and it's the middle of the day if that's gonna annoy you then the rest of the movie is really going to annoy you. If you're fine with that, you'll be okay. But there's so much that's wrong with this movie. We're not even just talking in a sort of an acting capacity. The technical stuff's ropey. The music, actually, I've got to say, the score's okay. Don't mind the score. But then they've got somebody who'd scored the horror movies before. It wasn't just thrown together. But again, I mean, they've got some guy who's directed a load of movies. I don't know where this went off the rails. Because he seems to think it's a particularly striking vision. I mean, it's striking, but not, not in the way that he thinks it is. The people that they've got swapping out with the presents, they go on about the presents earlier on. I was thinking, what, what presents? And it turns out that the presents are the family that they're swapping houses with. So, you know, that's ultimately confusing as well, because they say, no, there's 26 people there, including the presents. It's like, what presents are they? Anyway, the presents are this weird family that they're swapping with. So it's just full of weird stuff like that, you know, like the choice of names and the dialogue is, is all so odd. People just joke about saying that, you know, this is dialogue that no human being would ever say. Troll 2, from start to finish, is all dialogue no human being would ever say, which just makes it so interesting because you're constantly being thrown by what they're going to say next. And it's very, very obvious that after about 15 minutes what they're going to say is genuinely not what you're going to expect because they just go off on sort of flights of fantasy it's it's such a strange movie but i think what they were trying to do was make a fairly standard mainstream crowd pleaser with a bit of a message in it and what they've ended up with is just a hundred times more strange than that it's such a strange movie the whole thing about Elliot suddenly becomes part of the family, apparently. After all this stuff about the fact that he's going to get his nuts cut off, at one point in the movie he turns up and he's announced it as part of the family. And everybody's like, oh yeah, that's cool. But 
in the first act wasn't he the one that was going to get his nuts cut off if he was coming anywhere near but now all of a sudden it's like no no elliot's the guy that can save us i mean he isn't because elliot's absolutely rubbish in this movie <laughs> if they're setting him up to be the hero he is utterly crap as a hero figure in this movie and it kind of just grinds to a halt it sort of finishes and then there's a bit of a shock at the end but it's almost like you know what we've done enough now let's just finish and that's another weird thing because it builds to a climax that kind of doesn't happen oh my gosh so the climax is literally i mean the whole movie as well joshua is the only one who is suspicious of everybody in this town and his parents are just completely kind of oblivious to it all and you just think they're making it so obvious this is staring you in the face these are bad people they're trying to hurt you and they just they're saying oh everything's fine and that so it's only this like 10 year old kid that is you know all there knows what's going on and with the aid of his beloved grandpa seth the ghost he manages to defeat the evil goblins and Credence with double-decker bologna sandwich. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. That is what actually kills these goblins by him eating this meat sandwich. I do remember seeing this for the first time. And I think basically, I, it, I may not have said it at the screen. I probably didn't say it at the screen. But when they unveil what's going to defeat him, this bologna sandwich, I think the the thought that must have flashed across my mind at the time was, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, a fair kind of uh, response to that, I think. <laughs> yeah, and then it doesn't end there. So it does that typical horror movie trope where everything seems all right, it's happy ending, everything's gone back to normal. And then for no reason, Joshua's mother gets eaten by the goblins and it basically ends on him doing this kind of Kevin McAllister scream and then the credits roll. Yeah, which considering two minutes previously they'd all been defeated. Where did that come from? I mean it's not the it's same a... ones come back yeah. as well. The same yeah. goblins, yeah. the ones that have just been defeated. It's the same costumes. Yeah. Including <laughs> the one that isn't stitched together properly. <laughs> yeah. Love him. It's just, again, it's just, it's a decision that I just don't quite understand. I understand where you're going to get a last shock from, but it's got to be tied to the rest of the plot. Whereas this, they just restart everything again for no reason whatsoever. They're defeated and then all of a sudden, oh no, they're not defeated, they're back and they've eaten his mother. It's like, okay, but how does that work? The reason being... Well, it doesn't work. They've just thrown something at the end to say, oh, you know, you thought it was all over, but it isn't. But it clearly was over two or three minutes previously. Again, it just fits with the rest of the movie because it's basically a load of story ideas that they've put into a cannon and just fired at a wall. And then some of them stick and some of them don't. And none of them are really connected together. But they've made a movie out of it. Roll credits, there you go. Now, normally, if you've got the credits rolling after some one of these, you just think, well, that was okay, or that was really good, or didn't enjoy that much. When the credits roll on Troll 2, you're more likely to be sitting there going, what? Yeah, but I can't hate on this film at all, because I genuinely do enjoy it, and I get enjoyment out of rewatching it. And I especially enjoy watching it with other people just to gauge their reactions. 
some people still say to me to this day that they remember watching Troll 2 with me. They've never been able to get it out of their heads. And I personally see that as a good thing. That's a win. You can piss on hospitality, you can also piss on Troll 2. But I don't think it's fair to piss on Troll 2 because it's just there and it does something slightly different. It doesn't do it well. It's not a movie that you can point to as a great example of cinema. But if you've had a couple of beers and you've got a room full of people, there's not many films that will provide as much entertainment as Troll 2. Oh yeah, it's definitely a watch with a group of friends type of movie and just enjoy it. That That's all you can do with it. And I mean, I don't think I've ever met anyone that is like, oh, Troll 2 is just like so terrible. It's like, it's more like, have you seen Troll 2? Isn't it hilarious? It's That's the kind of vibe that um, comes across from it. So at the moment, it is standing at 3.0 out of 10 on IMDb. And over on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 5% tomato meter and 44% audience score. Now, to be fair, it, for years it had a 0% tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. So this is actually, you know, it's gone up in the world a little bit there. Somebody's leapt in to defend it then in yeah, the Rotten absolutely. Tomatoes critics circle. I can understand the gap between the scores because critics are not going to enjoy that movie. They're going to look at it and just think, if I give this a good review, I've tanked my reputation pretty much. Unless you're a... Uh, Bad movie connoisseur. So I can understand why critics didn't like it. The 44% audience score means that some people are actually taking it for what it is, or rather for what it isn't, because it's not the serious comment that uh, Claudio Fragasso and Rosella Drudy meant it to be. It is an absolute riot, though. And I think the audience score, if anything, I guess it probably will go up on Rotten Tomatoes. I can't see it going down because there's more people watch it I think more people will watch it in an audience setting as well. So I guess that score's going to just keep going up. The IMDb one, 3 out of 10. I guess, yeah, I suppose when it first came out, it just got pelted. And I think it's going to be very hard for it to drag that score up now. I think it's more than it used to be. I think it had a much lower score on IMDb. I think it's crept up to 3. I think at some point when I checked a few years ago, it was something like 24 so it's getting there. It's it's never going to be kind of 8, 9 out of 10, just because of what it is. But I think with that sort of rating, it is going to lure people into wanting to see it. So actually having a zero rating or 2.4 rating isn't going to do it any harm because people are going to be so curious oh, yeah. to see what they're going to let themselves in for. I'm going to finish off here on a quote on Rotten Tomatoes from Kevin Carr from 7 Meter Pictures. And I think he summed this up perfectly. God awfulness in the best way imaginable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's spot on. It is God awful, but it is immensely entertaining as well. I'm not going to stand here and say that this is the best movie you'll ever see because it quite clearly isn't. But if you're in the right mood and you want to see something that is so unbelievably misguided in every frame, this is the movie for you. Right, we've covered Troll, we've covered Troll 2, but now we're going to move on to the documentary centering around Troll 2 and its legacy. It's Best Worst Movie. 
It's directed by Michael Stevenson, who is Joshua in Troll 2. So, best worst movie, I'm just going to read this uh, quick synopsis by Anonymous on IMDb. In 1989, unwitting Utah actors starred in the undisputed worst movie in history, Troll 2. Two decades later, the legendary inept film's child star unravels the improbable, heartfelt story of an Alabama dentist turned cult movie icon and an Italian filmmaker who comes to terms with this genuine internationally revered cinematic failure. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Bass Worst Movie is a great documentary. I think it all depends on if you actually want to know why this movie was made, who was involved in it, how it all came to fruition and how these people feel about it now. If you don't want to know, I would say avoid this film because you're going to find out so much of the behind the scenes stuff. But for me, it is personally fascinating. So you've got Michael Paul Stevenson, as we said, played Joshua, and he is going back to understand what makes this film a universally decided best worst movie. For his background on it so he went into this thinking he was going to become some big famous child star and thought that he'd done some great work in this piece and you know to be fair he was a kid and he's you know it's like it is what it is he was reading the dialogue as as he was told to um you know he has, he's quite endearing in the film but he needs to kind of revisit why this film became what it did and he received it on videotape about a year after it was made, I believe. Mm. And he got so excited. So he was given this tape. And the weird thing about the tape as well, which I'll touch on marketing, is there is a little boy on the cover of the the VHS tape, along with some werewolf-looking monster with an axe. And this little boy is not Michael Paul Stevenson. It's somebody else. So that's very strange. But either way, he's excited to see his big movie debut and, you know, the poor child was crushed. He was utterly disappointed with what he saw. And I guess that is kind of the general consensus with all the actors in the film as well. So the film then veers off to look at the life of George Hardy, who plays the dad in the film. And he owns a dental practice and he's um, very much like beloved by the community and everybody just um, is baffled when they find out he was in this movie but he embraces it and I think that's that's what's really great I think this film is about embracing the best worst movie and seeing how some people absolutely love it some people really hate it we get to meet the director the writer in this you know, everybody practically involved in that film revisits it. And then you get this whole uh, cult screenings, fandom, you get horror conventions, um, which that whole segment was very interesting. So we're just going to dive into Bethesda's movie and just talk all about it and, uh, yeah, our general thoughts. I like the fact that it follows one main character, in inverted commas. It gets to George Hardy, who is quite an amiable guy so you get a bit of background on him in his dental practice and the town he lives in and he's a guy who always wanted to be an actor he's a bit of a showman he's the sort of guy that wants to be front and center but he's not big-headed about it he seems quite a decent bloke he's quite funny everybody in the town seems to love him and he starts from the point where he realizes that movie is terrible 
but as time rolls on he gets people contacting him and and saying that like it's one of their most favorite movies and how it's great and and he kind of embraces both sides of it he likes the fandom but he also accepts that it's not the greatest piece of art in the world and yet people still love it and then it's George's journey about trying to reunite various members of the cast which he does with varying degrees of success not all of them want to be involved in the ultimate screening of Troll 2 in his hometown. It gives you a pretty fascinating glimpse into the background of low-budget movie making. The fact that a lot of these people probably thought they were just going to be extras in the movie and ended up taking some fairly prominent roles in there. Which, yeah, how low-budget movie making works, really. It's an interesting clash between the actors and the director I mean, the director doesn't seem to have an awful lot of respect for his cast. I have to say that. And he says that they just come out with bullshit at conventions. It's kind of mean to his cast because, I mean, they're, they're up on the screen and they're having to say his dialogue. He kind of comes to a grudging respect about it. He doesn't really understand why American audiences laugh throughout the movie because he says that there's a serious point behind it. I agree that there's a serious point behind it, but the way it's put across, you can't not laugh at what's on screen. Eventually, I think he does say that, you know, if it's getting a reaction, it's a good thing. But at the start, he really doesn't like the fact that he's standing in these auditoria and it's just full of people pissing themselves at his movie, which he thinks is some sort of comment on the family unit. Yeah, it's definitely a culture clash there, as we've discussed when we were talking about Troll 2 itself. It is the fact that he would not allow his actors to read the dialogue as they wanted to and what would have sounded a bit more American. So that obviously is what affected it. And he would not you know, allow any improv, everything that was on that page had to be put to screen there was no way he was going to allow actors to overrule him in any capacity he sound, he was a very kind of strict kind of guy very focused like driven knew what he wanted which is fine but i can't imagine him being easy to work for just because he has a very different vision of what this film actually is but again that's what's so fascinating in this documentary because you get the points of view of so many people and how this film affected their lives. So you have the screenings and you've got so many people that just absolutely love Troll 2 and they've brought it to Rocky Horror Picture Show status. In the sense, you've got people dressing up, coming to screenings, you know, quoting the lines, throwing things at the screen. And it's all about bringing like a community together, having something that everyone collectively loves and enjoys. And that's what's so cool about it. But then... Later on in the documentary, so this documentary was filmed over three years, so I believe from between about 2006 to 2009. Um, it came out in 2009. And it's a moment where they go to Birmingham, of all places, to a Comic-Con. Yeah. And nobody there is interested in Troll 2, which really surprised me because I thought it has got quite a big following over in the UK, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just me like sitting there thinking oh yeah like if a screening of troll 2 came up everybody would just like rush to it because of its cult status but 
in Birmingham, it's really awkward. They're just sat there at the tables. No one's coming up to them. And then they're doing a Q&A and there's hardly anybody in the audience. And there are people sat there that don't actually seem to know what they've come to watch. And then you have this American convention. I think it was Texas Frightmare they were at. Yes. And they're kind of sitting near the Nightmare on Elm Street 5 cast and um, like swapping notes with them about what it's like to have been part of an old 80s movie. And George Hardy especially gets so pissed off with this whole experience to the point where he starts insulting the horror fans. And I know it would have been a completely different story if loads of people were coming to the table wanting autograph and wanting to talk about Troll 2. But because they're kind of shunned and not many people are approaching them, like he does get really pissed off to the point it's like, let's all pack up and leave. Like, what am I doing here? And he even like insults these these people's dental hygiene as well, which is, is quite funny. <laughs> yeah, the facade cracks a little bit there. But I think it is quite a dispiriting experience for them all because they've been on this wave of it being rediscovered and that everybody seems to love it. And then they go somewhere and nobody is interested at all, which is interesting in terms of how different countries perceive it. I think maybe at the time the UK was still looking down its nose at Troll 2. I think if they did it now, there'd be a lot more interest in it because the movie's got a lot more traction and people do embrace that kind of movie making a lot more than they used to. It kind of pulls the rug from under because you've got all this joyous stuff going on and then they go to Birmingham and then everything comes crashing down. It's quite neatly structured because you get this whole thing where they build them up, they build them up, they build them up and then they knock them down and then it's kind of, can they rally, can they triumph at the end? So it's structured in many ways like a a normal scripted movie. You get the hero battling against the odds. At the end, will he actually come out smelling roses? Will there be triumph? Will there be tragedy? So you get that sort of thing. I don't think a lot of it is particularly staged. I think it's just naturally how things happen. In fact, there are certainly some uncomfortable moments when um, George Harley goes to see Margot Prey, who is the mum in the movie, and there's some quite uncomfortable moments in that sequence. Eventually, they do kind of redo the car sequence with everybody in her house and stuff, and that's that's quite sweet. But she's definitely more reluctant to participate in any of it than George Hardy is. Because George Hardy's like, oh yeah, let's just do everything. Let's let's celebrate the movie. Margot is much more reticent about it. Yeah, I don't think she wanted to get involved at all. And given her circumstances while she was caring for her elderly mother, yeah. um, you know, her life turned out differently. Even though she, I think, wanted to be an actress, things didn't work out. And I think she'd left Troll 2 in the past. Mm. So... I don't really think she knew how to kind of process it all, like when they turn up at her house and, you know, try and encourage her to get involved. And I think from what we saw of her, if she had gone to one of those screenings, she would have probably felt quite overwhelmed with the reception. So I think, you know, she had to do what was best for her. And then you have Don Packard as well, who plays the store owner. Now, his story is very interesting because he was actually a patient in a mental hospital in Utah, at the time and he ended up playing the part of the store owner because the original person had pulled out on reflection he says that he wasn't acting in that scene that was his like own anger coming out 
And again, he kind of wanted to step back from the movie. He did quietly sit in the audience during the screenings, but then when he was encouraged to go on stage and realise how many people enjoyed his performance, I think that gave him a confidence boost. So he managed to embrace it as well in the end. And I did um, read the other day that he passed away last year at the age of 94. Sad news, but 94. Don Packard's story is is really bittersweet. It's like quite a lot of this movie. There's a very bittersweet edge to Best Worst Movie. The fact that he comes on afterwards when they've, they've encouraged him to get up on the stage and there's people cheering him and they're asking him about the movie. And he kind of says, well, you know, basically it's the best moment of my life, which is lovely. But also at the back of it is like, well, if that's the best moment of his life, you know, what's the rest of his life been like? So you have to think about that as well. It isn't just some kind of wacky documentary about a wacky movie. There's proper emotion going on in here as well. It's not just something where, oh, let's celebrate this really terrible movie and let's have a few jokes about it. It's about real people as well and the effect that this sort of filmmaking can have on people either positively or negatively. Yeah, and then Connie Young speaks about how she will leave Troll 2 off her resume. (laughs) She's so embarrassed by it. And for her, it was quite shocking to read all the negative comments about herself on imdb it was harsh she was a young actress she was just you know reading off the script Mm. you know she wasn't necessarily comfortable there was um a story where she didn't even want to say that line about cutting off the nuts and they'd approached the director and said look can we just change this line because no one's going to say this and he wouldn't allow it so you know she's reluctantly have to deliver lines that she's not comfortable with so it's very difficult in that respect she did attend a couple of q a's though she did like get involved with it but i think she's one of the main actresses that wants to like distance herself from the entire thing yeah i mean it's must be fairly brutal reading stuff about you that's saying that you suck and she does actually say it yes i do suck in this movie i do you know she was an inexperienced actress and she thought she was giving a decent performance and she looks back on it and she knows that she hasn't i'm sure that she's improved vastly because she's still working as an actress when we're all sort of taking the piss out of movies and going oh this is terrible and they're they're rubbishing it and you know this does have consequences if you're going on to imdb and slating somebody for their performance and they're just seeing this over and over and over again that can't be good for somebody's confidence big up to her for pursuing a dream of being an actress because I think most people would look at the IMDb stuff from Troll 2 and thought right that's it I'm done yeah absolutely and you know I can understand her wanting to put it in the past firmly where it belongs and it must be difficult for these people because this film is going to follow them around for life they are going to be forever attached to it I think all that's really fascinating I mean for the Joshua actor um, Michael Paul Stevenson he became a filmmaker mm. and this was I think his first foray into filmmaking making this documentary as well so you know obviously he turned it around to something positive and this documentary is very well received it's got 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb and it's got 94% uh, tomato meter and rotten tomatoes with an 84% audience score so it's incredible to see like all the behind the scenes people actually appreciate more and obviously become a bit more of a a crowd pleaser than the film itself so that's really interesting yeah it's a really good documentary and it kind of balances the filmmaking process and the serious side of it with the fun side where you've got the q a screenings that's all really fun and and the people who actually started off 
<laughs> thinking it was just basically a piece of shit as a movie and then coming around to the fact that actually you know this is quite enjoyable if you sit with an audience you can actually get quite a lot of, out of it uh, to the point where some people there's, there's something called the Trollympic Games where there's games based on troll so you see at some point people standing in a big plant pot trying to hop towards the finish line that's the sort of level of fandom we're talking about with Troll 2 and it just seems to keep rolling and rolling so it does have a positive message eventually, but it does also point out the fact that there are casualties of this sort of movie making as well, which is quite a responsible treatment. Definitely. I think this is so worth seeing. As if you want to find out, if you want to leave the mystique of Troll 2 just to the movie, if you don't want to know, I say don't approach the documentary, but... Oh, it is completely worth seeing. It's so interesting just to see how everyone responded to it and how it impacted their lives. And, you know, you realise, you know, that these are real people. These are human beings behind this film and that, you know, everyone's ridiculed for so long. I say, I embrace Troll 2. I find it endearing. It's a great bad movie and that's how it should be enjoyed, but not with, like, insulting cast members or anything like that. That's just not cool. No, I mean, that's where it goes too far. You can... You can criticise the movie for what it is and for the fact that it doesn't technically work properly and the, the acting might be a little bit shaky. Well, it is a little bit shaky. But to actually go and name people, that's just targeting people for no reason at all. You can, yeah, I mean, hate is probably a pretty strong word. I mean, you can dislike the movie. That There's no problem with disliking the movie. But disliking the people who are in it just because they were in the movie, no, that's going too far. There's plenty of stuff on the disc. There's lots and lots of deleted scenes on Best Worst Movie if you actually do get the disc. And it's the package is really worth getting. There's loads and loads of extras on it. Some of the cast members that you don't see in the movie do actually turn up on the extras. You do get to see Deborah Reed at one point. And there is an interview with her separately. So you get to know a little bit about um, Credence. But to be perfectly honest, if you watch the deleted scenes, they don't really matter in the big scope of the movie the fact that they're on the disc is fine and it adds a little bit of color to it but they're deleted for a reason it doesn't really further the documentary any it does mean that you can see all the other stuff that they filmed as well which is quite interesting and there's kind of a troll to tribute shorts in there as well which is fun as well movie as far as film documentaries go i think it's not quite as high-minded as some other filmmaking documentaries, which works because Troll 2 isn't a high-minded movie. It's trying to capture the spirit of the film, and I think it does it really well. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, we need to mention that the uh, current Blu-ray that's out is released by Eureka Entertainment, and it has Troll, Troll 2, and Best Worst Movie over two discs. And yes. as you say, it has all the extras as well. So it's really, really great. And if you're you know, a fan of Troll, Troll 2, just get it because it's definitely worth having i own this on blu-ray and dvd now so <laughs> just judge me all you will i don't care um to just finish off <laughs> there is a troll three now this is something that i found a bit confusing so there's a film called the crawlers which is known as troll three or contamination seven <laughs> or quest for the mighty swords so I'm not really sure. I think there's a couple of movies that are titled Troll 3 somewhere, but I'm not really sure what the definitive one is. And again, it's nothing to do with Troll or Troll 2. 
I mean, that would be quite fitting if Troll 3 had nothing to do with Troll or Troll 2, because the other two movies are not connected whatsoever. So if just some random title turned up as Troll 3, I think that would actually be quite a fitting way for the series to bow out on its trilogy. Contamination 7. I mean, I've seen Contamination. I've not seen the other two to six of Contamination. So if they've got to seven in that, this is a lapse in my filmmaking knowledge, I have to say. <laughs> I, I have to go out and find out what all these other Contamination movies were about. I didn't even know there was more than just one. So, <laughs> But yeah, that that's just so fascinating with how movies are marketed and how you know certain titles get attached to films that have nothing to do with the title it's really really interesting and i'm sure there's so much out there to be discovered yeah maybe we will do troll 3 one day but we'll leave it a while yeah absolutely so it'll be a completely like new viewing experience for us both i do wish we could chat longer and that's it for episode 52 of the hd movie podcast as always thank you for listening and if you enjoyed this content and want to check us out on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Next episode. It's the most romantic time of the year. It's Valentine's for so many of us. And in keeping with this time of the year, we're going to be doing Valentine's movies. I can't wait. We have a double bill for you. Two different genres both probably equally as horrifying. We've got the 2001 studio slasher movie Valentine, which I haven't seen for a while. I think that's probably going to be an interesting rewatch. And on the subject of All Things Valentine, we're going to be watching a movie called All Things Valentine. And it's Hallmark. We are back on the Hallmark train just for Valentine's Day. Can't you tell how excited we sound about this, but we're going to you know, endure this film for your enjoyment. There'll probably be a rant somewhere. Yeah, looking at the synopsis and looking at the first few seconds of the movie, I think there's a possibility that there could be a rant somewhere along the line on this one. So tune in to find out if that is actually true in episode 53. Until then, stay safe, everybody, and we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.